I'm going to read two other passages, the Old Testament and the New Testament reading for today. I'm reading from the Bible that Bishop Mike and Bishop Beth gave me at my priesting, and I discovered, or rediscovered today, that when they gave me this Bible, it had this bookmarker for Ken Boyer Bell Bonds in it, which seemed like quite an omen. So far, I've not had to use it, but it is marking this, this text for the day. If you have the interpretation of that tongue, you can let me know after service. The Old Testament reading for the day is Malachi 4, 1 and 2. Malachi 4, 1 and 2, which I have to find. This, the arrangement of this Bible is difficult to follow. On the day that I am preparing, says the Lord, they are going to be my special possession. I will make allowances for them. As a man makes allowances for the son who obeys him, then again you will see the difference between an upright man and a wicked one, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For the day is coming now, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoers will be like stubble. The day that is coming is going to burn them up, leaving them neither root nor stalk. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will shine out with healing in its wings. And then Second Thessalonians. This is the New Testament reading for the day. One of the favorite passages of the people that raised me, it's the, if you do not work, you should not, if you do not work, you cannot eat text, which I did not mark and should have marked. Here, I'll read it this way. My anxiety will make more sense to you in just a moment, I promise. Now we commend you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, so that we not, might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. So I'm going to come to the sermon in just a moment, but I have to set the context for all of this by telling you a story. So I am working on a follow-up book to the book I wrote about beauty, and it's supposed to be a trilogy. The first book was Jesus and Beauty, the second book is Jesus and Goodness, and the last book, 
Lord willing, will be a book on Jesus and truth. And I had sent this book out for review. The press that's publishing it, they send it out for what's called blind review, which means they send the manuscript out without my name attached to it to people who do not know me and do not know my work. They read it. I don't know who they are. They send their responses in, and then the publisher decides whether or not to move forward. This is always risky because people have the chance to say what they want without ever having to be accountable for what they say. It, you know, if you maybe you've heard of social media, it works essentially like that. Just imagine the nerdiest people having the chance to nerd out in full with their meanness, right? So it often happens, in fact, there's a running joke in, amongst academics that reviewer two is always just spoiling for the chance to dispirit someone. So reviewer one typically loves the work, thinks you should publish it without any changes, just it's ready to go today, and reviewer two is, this is an embarrassment, if this sees the light of day, we should all quit, right? So reviewer two weighed in on my book, and I have to, I have to just share this with you. It's, it's going to be, I think, really uplifting for all of you, as it was for me. The first thing he had to do, and I, it had to be a he, there's no woman in the world that would have said the things that are said in this review. It says something, maybe that's essentialist, I don't know, but just listen to what was said and then you decide. So the first thing he had to do was write a summary of the work, which is excellent. I may in fact use it when the book is published. I may in fact use his summary just as a kind of inside joke and repair to my image. <laughs> but the second question is, does this provide an original contribution? Is there anything original about this book? Anything new? And I knew when I read this one sentence that I was in trouble. Here's the one sentence. I'm reading it word for word. It is very original in that I have never read anything like it before. <laughs> I knew right then. I, I, I had to stop. I'm like, I, I don't know if I have the heart for what's about to happen. There's some other questions about the resources that I used, whether or not I used them well. And then the question about the structure, and it starts off so nicely. Listen to this. The book's chapters progress nicely through a variety of Old Testament texts from Genesis to Ruth. Each chapter that I read, the ones I was assigned to read, had a similar three-part structure, moving from exegetical-like interaction with the biblical text to an exploration of some ancient Christian sources, highlighting the question of anti-Judaism in some way and ending with what read as a highly mystical, speculative, theological reflection. Indeed, so mystical and so speculative, I couldn't make head or tail of some of it. <laughs> with what other published works is this comparable? I could not know. This is not like any of the works I know as a biblical scholar. There may be theologians writing in this genre. He's basically spitting at this point. But it isn't my specialty. What is the potential significance of this work? Difficult to say. It's not my cup of tea. Finally, should Baylor University Press publish this project? And then this is, this is glorious. I mean, it's at my expense, but it's too good not to share. That depends on whether Baylor thinks there is a readership for this sort of work. <laughs> Meaning no disrespect to the learned author. See, no woman would say this. Meaning no disrespect to the learned author. He means me, by the way. 
As I read especially the third section of the chapters, I often thought of Don Pedro's words concerning Dogberry's speech and Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, Act 5, Scene 1. <laughs> I told you. This learned constable is too cunning to be understood. I am your learned constable. I'm signing all of my correspondence from now on with your learned constable. Now, I had to share that, but it is relevant to today because what I'm going to share may be too cunning to be understood. Uh, I'm going to have to trust the Holy Spirit to kind of close that gap I'm creating by my mystical and speculative commentary. I want to talk about these texts. Does the name Alexander Grotendieck sound familiar to anyone? I didn't know his name until just a few weeks ago, which is, I assumed was a result of my poor education, because he is, it turns out, to mathematics what Einstein is to physics. He's widely considered to be the most important, most influential, groundbreaking mathematician of the 20th century, who kind of at the height of his power, after he had won pretty much every award that could be won, walked away from his career and disappeared. And for a long time, no one but a couple of friends had any idea where he was. It turns out that he was living alone in the mountains, having this monastic-like end-of-life experience. The last 20, 25 years or so, I think, of his life, he's just alone in the mountains, praying and writing. And he writes a lot, some about math, but a lot a kind of philosophy of life, including a book on dreams. And in that book on dreams, he reflects for a bit about this change that has happened to him. And he makes, he's, he's essentially telling his life story and his parents' life stories. And he comes to this detail about the fact that when he was 16, he thinks he had the moment of truth, but he just wasn't courageous enough to face it, wasn't ready to face it then. And it wasn't until much, much later in life that he kind of accepted what he already knew at 16. But in reflecting on the fact that it took him that long to kind of digest what had happened to him as a boy, he makes this statement offhandedly that I've, I've thought about every day since I read it the first time just a couple of weeks ago. He said, there is a screen between us and God that keeps us from seeing God clearly. And all of us have it, and that screen is our vanity. And if we are humbled, if we lose our vanity, nothing is as clear to us as the nearness of God. There is a screen between us and God, and that is our vanity. And if we can be humbled, if we lose our vanity, nothing is clearer to us than the nearness of God. Now, these texts that I just read to you, which don't seem to have much to do with each other. I mean, I'm deeply impressed with the work that the people do, the people have done with the lectionary. I mean, they're learned constables. You should have laughed more at that. <laughs> that wasn't too cunning. You, should, you can follow that. But, these, it's imp- but sometimes, like this week, I've, I'm puzzled by, wait a minute, what does Jesus say, not one stone will be left upon another, have to do with Malachi? The day is coming, burning like an oven. And what do either of those have to do with, if you don't work, you don't eat? I mean, how, how are those tied together? And I think they're tied together because they have to do 
with what keeps us from seeing the nearness of God, our vanity. Ecclesiastes, you remember, says, all is vanity. I've searched out everything. I've searched the heights and the depths, the breadth and the width. I've searched it all, and what I find is all is vanity and vexation of spirit. But I think the insight Grotendieck has out in those mountains, I don't think we all have to walk away from our lives and disappear into the mountains to see it, but I do think we have to be quiet and alone to see it, is that what we see as vanity is in fact just a screen on which we're projecting our fears. We're not seeing reality. We're seeing what we fear reality will be. Notice in the gospel and the Old Testament today, we begin with, look, the disciples and Jesus are in the temple not long before Jesus is killed, and they are awed by what they are staring at. And Jesus is not awed, and he says to them, it's not going to be very long before not one of these stones will be left upon another. And I'm stunned by their response. They don't say they don't believe him. They don't say, oh, surely, Lord, you don't mean that. They say, tell us what the sign will be so we'll know when it's coming. Now think about that for a moment. You're with the Lord. You're impressed. I mean, these are Galilean fishermen, and they're in this architectural marvel, this gold-covered, ivory-laden marvel that is the center of their world the center of their world, the center of their history, center of their identity as a people. And now their teacher says to them, this isn't going to last. Not only is it not going to last, it's going to be utterly destroyed. And that's not even the end. That's just the beginning of the end. And what's going to follow that is persecution and betrayal and abuse you're going to be delivered up not only by the magistrates, not only before kings and governors, but your own families are going to turn against you. And then he makes two very odd statements. Jesus apparently was a learned constable too. He says, but not one hair of your head will perish. He had just told them, some of you will be killed. Many of you will be beaten. How are you going to keep the hair of my head from perishing if they kill me. And we know what's going to happen because we know the story as it unfolds. They are going to be stoned. They are going to be crucified. They are going to be burned. They are going to be banished. So what does he mean, not a hair on your head will perish? And then he says, in your patience or through your endurance, you will win your lives. In the Old Testament text, Malachi says, the word of the Lord is, I'm going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. You're going to see the difference. And that day, see, that day is already coming, and it's coming like a burning oven, and it's going to consume the wicked and leave them as ashes. But for those who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise or arise with healing in its wings. I wonder how much of what we see 
is in fact just a projection of our fears. Last night, Andy was singing this song that has a line about the kingfisher arising to its rightful throne. I've always loved this song, Andy. You don't know the story. But I've always loved this song because my grandfather, who died on Good Friday six years ago, my grandfather lived on a farm, and just down from their house was a pond, and for years, a kingfisher lived there. And every morning, my grandfather would get up with his binoculars that we bought him for Christmas, and he would watch the kingfisher. And there was something about that bird that was for him a sign of God's nearness. There were many, many times I would see him watching that bird crying. It, it was a sense, it was for him a, a kind of sacrament, a kind of near, God is here. Of course, I didn't know at the time, but later I would learn the Gerard Manley Hopkins poem. I mean, that's what nerds like me do. We learn things like poetry by priests that talks about kingfishers catching fire. As kingfishers catch fire. I would think about my grandfather. And there's something not just sweet, but holy about the way that I was remembering him. So the first time I heard that song, Andy, and every time I've heard it since then, the time that I sing that line, I start crying. Because what I see, what I see is my grandfather holding those binoculars, looking out the window at his house, which no longer exists. A tornado took it away. And... I feel that sense of his sweetness and goodness. And so last night I was sitting there on the third row where Derek is sitting now. That song came up. I knew from the first stroke what we were going to be singing. I'm already tearing up. We get to that line and I sing it out loud. And all of a sudden, on the screen of my vanity, I saw my grandfather just a few days before he died eaten up with dementia. And I saw him crying, but I saw the fear in his eyes. And I heard this voice say, it is not enough. And I bolted out of the room. It scared me like I have only been scared a couple other times in my life. I didn't know what to do with it. By the way, this is not in the book. This is not what he was responding to when he said that he didn't have any idea to make head or tail of it. This would just make it worse for him. But somehow, like, what had happened in that moment, what had happened in that moment was this attack, this projection of an image onto the screen of my vanity saying, so what if your grandfather knew? This deep intimacy with God. So what if he could be moved by wonder at seeing this bird? In the end, he was afraid too. What was I feeling? I mean, that's our enemy talking, but it's my vanity that gives it a screen. It's the same thing that the disciples are seeing. When Jesus starts talking about the fall of their world, all they're interested in is tell us the sign so we'll know what to do to make sure we get out alive. Give us the clue so that we know how to control what's going to happen. No one else will know, but we will know. Give us the insider secret so before the market collapses, we can make all of the right moves and not lose our skin. 
Jesus' response is, oh, don't be deceived. That's not the end. You think if this temple came down, if this glorious architecture fell, if all this gold was stripped away and all this ivory was shattered, this symbol of your history and your identity, you think if that was gone, it would be the end. That's not the end. And you think if you were persecuted, betrayed, if your family turned against you, that would be the end. It's not the end. You think if they stripped you from all that's precious to you, You think if they took your life from you, that would be the end, but that's not the end. In fact, none of those things touch a hair of your head. None of those things. Not the loss of the most important thing in your life. Not the loss of your life itself. None of that touches you. All of that is a projection. Thomas Alik, who wrote this wonderful book called Patience with God. He's written a lot of other stuff, but I particularly love that book. He was a priest in, under Soviet rule, an underground priest, who kind of presented himself as a professor, but was actually working underground, offering communion, baptism, rites for the dying, secretly. And then when communism broke and he was allowed to come public, he began to write and share publicly, openly about what he had learned. One of those books is the book called Patience with God. And in it, he's reflecting on 9-11. And he makes this observation that terrorism does not work because of what happened on 9-11. Terrorism works because of the way we imaged what happened on 9-11. He said, the fear that grips our heart because of terrorism is not that those planes flew into the building. It's that we watched them and that those images are seared into our consciousness. And suddenly they represent all that could happen. If those towers can come down, if the Pentagon can be struck, what about me? I remember when we first heard the news about 9-11, the person I was with turned to me and said, is it going to happen to us? was the first question that was asked after I heard the news. But not just because of what had happened, but because of what we were seeing. And what Malachi and what Jesus have to say to us is, be careful what you look at and how you see it. Because almost certainly what you're seeing is not real. It's a projected image on the screen of your fear. The screen of your vanity. And your vanity is empty. But you're not. And life is not. And God is not. And this is what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. Paul is not, I don't want to offend anyone, Paul is not some kind of proto-capitalist trying to make a point about showing up to work on time and doing good work, showing that you know how to be disciplined. I mean, that may be true. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is the only thing that's going to free you up from seeing those images on the screen of your vanity is to get to work with the things that matter. Don't be weary in doing what is right. And the point of that passage, by the way, is not, is not that you have to earn the right to eat. It's that you don't want to be the kind of person who steals from those who are actually needy. The point of the passage is work so we have to give, not work so you have the right to eat. Don't think that your place in this community 
is to devour resources from other people. You're here to work. But again, that's a gift to you because it's when you give yourself to what matters that all of a sudden you're not watching that screen. And if that screen disappears, Grotendieck says, and I think he's right, nothing is clearer than the nearness of God. So I'm going to leave you with this thought. Malachi says, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And it is going to devour the wicked and the evildoer and consume them to ashes. But for those who fear my name, the sun will rise with healing in its wings. That can also be translated, the sun will rise with healing in the folds of its garment. And early Christian readers, church fathers, read that as about Jesus, who, when people would touch the hem of his garment, were healed. But this is what I want to show you. First, the image of the temple. What Jesus is saying there, he's not gloating or glorying in the fact that the temple is coming down. What he's saying to you is that even the most beautiful, precious things that we make, they're going to come down. But that's not the end. And whatever your temple is, whatever mine is, it'll come down. That's not the end. And we have to be careful how we see that end and what we allow to come up on the screen of our vanity when we think about that end. Jesus says, in fact, not a hair on your head will perish. Nothing about who you are is going to be changed by what you lose. Think about that. Nothing about who you are can be changed by anything you lose. And then he says, in your patience or through your endurance, you will win your life. Francis de Sales, who was the bishop of Geneva, the irony there is Geneva was Calvin's Geneva. It's a Protestant city. So he's bishop of a city he can't appear in without being arrested and executed. I mean, Tulsa's not the best place in the world, but it's not Calvin's Geneva, amen? He writes, Francis de Sales writes this book called Introduction to the Devout Life, in which he talks about patience. And he says, he quotes that passage, in your patience you win your life. And he says, this is a reference to the fact that each one of us is pregnant with the Christ child. And patience is the labor that brings him full term. Patience is the labor that brings him full term. Patience with what? Patience with what is happening to you. Patience with your health. Patience with your kids. Patience with your spouse. Patience with your job. Patience with your government. Patience with the weather. Patience with yourself. Patience with God. That's just labor. And it's painful as hell. But it ends up with Jesus being born. And I've been in the room three times for this. I've been there and watched my wife this isn't going to happen. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. This is going to go badly. Isn't he beautiful? <laughs> Give him to me. Isn't she gorgeous? Isn't she perfect? Hour after hour of this is awful. This is, no, no, this is the end. We can't do this. We can't do this. Stop it. I can't do it. I can't. Isn't she perfect? 
That's patience. And Malachi says, the day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven. And this morning I woke up and the thought hit me, why are we afraid of that? He's just preparing a meal. We're about to come. If I'll shut up and get out of the way, we're going to come to this table. There's an oven burning here. And what he uses as fuel is all the pain in your life, all the ways you've been wronged. I'm thinking, Andy, about the story we were talking about last night, what was done to you and your wife. That's just fuel for God's oven. Every lie that's ever been told about you, every accusation the enemy has made like it is not enough, every time your body rebelled against you, Every time someone failed to show up when you needed them, that's just fuel for God's oven, and he's preparing a feast for you. See it. See it. This is real. This is real. Don't look at the images on the screen of your vanity. That water is real. This bread and this wine is real. These words are real. Not a a hair on your head will be harmed. Amen.